Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. everyone, welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. This episode is the third and last of a brief series on fairy tales and poetry. So basically I've explored some connections between fairy tales and poetry and how using those intersections can help you craft a better fairy tale retelling. This episode will make much more sense if you listen to the previous ones on Genesis and Ecclesiastes. In those episodes, I've focused on the themes of repetition and word choice. In this episode, I'll examine Proverbs 8, 22-36, and look at the inspired author's use of repetition, word choice, and now a third technique, personification. I'll read Proverbs 8, 22-36 out loud and discuss its context, structure, meaning, and application, and then get into some artistic applications for fairy tale retellings. Proverbs 8, 22-36, and as a reminder, the speaker here is wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Context for this passage. Literarily, the book of Proverbs begins with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and it begins with a purpose statement to know wisdom and instruction. Proverbs has some different forms of address and topics, a father calling his son to obey his teaching, the invitation of wisdom personified, instructions for walking in the way of righteousness, and a very important warning against the adulteress. We've already met wisdom personified in chapter 3, and chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 already introduced the idea of wisdom's age. It begins, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The beginning of this present chapter, chapter 8, was wisdom's call to love her and gain riches, honor, wealth, and life. 
I divided this passage into three sections. The Age of Wisdom, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. The Joy and Delight of Wisdom, 27 through 31. And a Blessing and Warning for Sons in verses 32 through 36. So first, the Age of Wisdom. The beginning of the passage in verse 22 mirrors Genesis 1 and that it puts the focus on God as the actor, the maker. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Every verb in this section, whether it's an active or passive tense, refers to an action of God. Possessed, set up, brought forth, had been shaved, brought forth, made the earth. Again, like the speaker of Genesis 1, wisdom is fixating on God and his work in creation. Verses 22 through 26 put a lot of emphasis on age and timing. The Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, ages ago, at the first, before the beginning. I was thinking about why. Why is that timing so important? It's repeated so much. And I think wisdom is claiming a kind of right as eldest to speak to mankind. So going back again to the context, wisdom in this chapter has been calling out that men should listen to her to receive life and truth, honor, wealth, justice, uh, just about every other good thing you can have on earth. As the eldest of created things, even as a poetic abstraction, she sounds a little bit like an older sibling trying to instruct the younger siblings by the authority of the parent. Next, we have some parallel lines about creation itself. Um, Hebrew parallelism in poetry consists of sets of lines that correspond with each other. For example, verse 24, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. I'm new to analyzing Hebrew parallelism, but I think this is what's called staircase parallelism. The lines match each other, but one of them leaves something out. In this case, the verb brought forth, which is passive tense, is left out of the second line, so that leaves the reader to assume it. The entire section feels like a staircase, or maybe a series of switchbacks up a mountain, emphasizing over and over in different ways wisdom's age and therefore preeminence. The Lord possessed, or my translation has a footnote that says it possessed could mean fathered her, before depths, springs, mountains, hills, earth and fields, and even dust. Second section, the joy and delight of wisdom in verses 27 through 31. So I called this section the joy and delight of wisdom, even though those ideas happen at the very end. There's a wording change in verse 27. In verse 26, we had three instances of before. So before, before, before. But suddenly it feels like we're reminded that we're in first person perspective and we get more of an in-scene view. It feels like we're right there with wisdom watching. Quote, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. So that's another staircase parallelism. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked it the foundations of the earth. That's the end of verse 29. The repetition, when, 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 builds anticipation here. I think we're meant to ask, what? What happened? So that verses 30 and 31 become a climax, just like the creation of man in Genesis 1. So then we have verse 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So here we get this fascinating definition of roles. If wisdom is the master workman, 
The Lord is the master craftsman. All of his verbs are crafting verbs. Established, drew a circle on the face of the deep. I'm not sure what that means, but it gives me a thrill. Made firm the skies. Established, assigned to the sea its limit. So just as in Genesis 1, the Lord creates, separates, and designates, uh, he's doing so here in a way that only someone of perfect knowledge, power, and authority could do. Verse 31 has a chiasmus, meaning a construction with A, B, B, A structure. So we have delight, rejoicing, rejoicing, delighting. And that chiasmus presses home a truth that I, I never really thought about before. In loving and worshiping the Lord and his creation, wisdom loves us. She loves mankind, the inhabitants of the world. So in these first two sections that I'm looking at, not only does wisdom have authority as a kind of eldest child of creation, again, she's a personification, but the way it's set up, but as the first witness and worshiper, wisdom also has the authority of love. So that builds straight into the third section, the blessing and warning for sons in 32 through 36. So with the authority of having been set up before the beginning of the earth, and one who delights in the children of man, wisdom again makes her call. And this time she uses the familial term sons. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. So I'll skip down a little bit, but um, later she says, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. The metaphor of someone watching at gates and waiting at doors suggests such an active listening that it's, it's really more like seeking or pursuing. And then we have another shift with the word for, uh, which we need to pay attention to. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So here it comes to the fundamental beyond earthly riches or honor. To choose wisdom is to choose life itself because only God gives life. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that the preacher eventually embraces as that which makes life good. The wisdom that helps you discern what time and season you may be facing and how to act in a way that honors God. So considering all of that, I would argue that the main points of this section, this passage, uh, all three of the sections I went over, is that wisdom brought forth by God at the dawn of creation freely offers life and divine favor to those who listen and obey her voice. I love how relational this is. Wisdom as rejoicing beside the Lord and inviting men to come to her to have life. Wisdom describes herself as present at the dawn of creation. As I already talked about in the Genesis episode, we've already learned from the Gospel of John that the Word of God was there. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So that's Gospel of John, verses 1 through 4. And all throughout the book of John, all throughout all the Gospels, the Lord Jesus consistently invites people into a relationship with him. So here in the book of Proverbs, wisdom, a poetic personification, prefigures the flesh and blood Son of God who came to earth. And with the Son of God, we can have a full relationship, not an allegory, not a metaphorical relationship, but, but the real thing. So considering Christ's call to relationship, that call to come and have life, one prudent application could be, maybe of the many voices in my life, how am I prioritizing the wisdom of God? 
Or maybe how am I listening, walking in the way, watching daily and waiting to find wisdom? But uh, I'm also looking at this passage as an artist who wants to imitate its beauty. So here's some artistic applications for fairy tale retellings. As in Genesis and Ecclesiastes, I see repetition and word choice at work here, but also a third technique, personification. So I'll go over repetition one more time. Um, the emphasis of, this, of the repetition of this passage on the age of wisdom, the work of God, and the call to listen and obey presses those meanings into our hearts. But the work of Hebrew parallelism, the, the parallelism of Hebrew poetry, prevents the text from becoming repetitive or sing-songy. It uses shorter and longer lines, staircase parallelism. And I, I believe there's also a third technique called uh, merismus. Um, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right, but <laughs> M-E-R-I-S-M-U-S. According to P.P. Jensen, whose article on biblical poetry was very, very helpful for me, merismus is, quote, the expression of totality using the two extremes. So in Proverbs 8, 27, for example, quote, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, end quote. So we go from highest to lowest in just two lines, and that image creates a sense of vastness and awe. When you use repetition in a fairy tale retelling, maybe take a look at how biblical poets use parallelism to keep repetition from being annoyingly repetitive. Use synonyms, longer and shorter sentences, variations in repeated images, or even deliberate contrast to help unify your story without frustrating the reader. I'll be honest about something. I'm pessimistic about how closely people are reading these days. I, I think we're more likely to skim than actually pay attention to the words on a page. And I know that because I'm the chief of skimmers. And we miss things that way. It's not fair to go back to the author and complain that they didn't include enough foreshadowing or clues about the ending if we readers just skimmed right past those instances of foreshadowing and carefully laid clues. I think repetition with a wise use of parallelism or variation could really help you craft a story that's memorable and easier to follow because repeated words, phrases, images, and names act like signposts to help keep the reader oriented. Last, personification. This is one of my favorite poetic tools. I'll note that uh, I was reading about this technique and I realized a lot of what I was calling personification is probably actually anthropomorphism. Personification is to make a person out of an abstract. So wisdom, death, justice, or love. If those step into your story as characters, that's personification. Anthropomorphism is giving human qualities to non-human things. So a fox speaking in human language, a clock having hands, or even the wind breathing. So I think I have that right. Classifying things is not my strength, one of the reasons I'm not a folklorist or a scientist. But anyway, related concepts. And fairy tales can use both to delve into truth and mystery in startling ways to make you see the world in a different way. For example, the singing soaring lark and the three ravens, both fairy tales, um, have a heroine who goes to the sun, moon, and the night wind, or the sun, moon, and stars, for help, and she talks with them. So that's probably anthropomorphism. It's giving a human voice and spirit to those parts of creation. Wolves and frogs and birds talk all the time. That's more anthropomorphism. But in more mythic tales like Cupid and Psyche, which is still a fairy tale, um, even though it's, it's much older and it's within Greek mythology, we have love as a god who is capable of marrying a mortal, and that would be personification. 
when you're dealing with a fairy tale that uses personification or anthropomorphism, I think we can learn from the way the inspired author of Proverbs portrayed divine wisdom. Wisdom is an abstract concept, and she becomes concrete when the speaker gives her concrete attributes. She's portrayed as calling from the highest places of the town. Later in chapter 9, she has a house with seven pillars and becomes a hostess who invites people to come to her table. So being very specific and material with personified or anthropomorphized concepts helps bring them to life. It takes knowing the heart of a thing to personify or anthropomorphize it well and give it a voice and character to incarnate and concretize its attributes in unique and compelling ways. So here are some examples from modern fairy tale retellings that I, I think have done this really well. Jessica Day George portrays the four winds in animal form in Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow, her retelling of East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Um, they're not really just animals, they're still winds, but they kind of take an animal shape. So the east wind is a great wolf in a forest of bowed and bent trees. It's um, uh, The atmosphere is, is really great in those sections. Shannon Hale in The Goose Girl, a retelling of a fairy tale of the same name, gives the wind a language. This wind can overhear and do things like pass on rumors. Um, it's not really a person, it doesn't have a straight personality like a human, but um, if you speak the language of the wind, you can control it. You can overhear the rumors. It's, it's very, very well done. In the last Harry Potter book, death is a schemer and a trickster within a folktale uh, in that wider story. Making abstract concepts human or giving human qualities to non-human things is just one more way of examining reality and the journey of the soul. Just as Proverbs shows the journey of those who walk into death through the invitation of folly, or those who come to life by embracing the wisdom of God. So that was my episode, or my three episodes, on the relationship between fairy tales and poetry in relation to fairy tale retellings. It did not turn out the way I expected. In reviewing repetition, word choice, and personification in biblical poetry, I had to orient myself with the text direction first, and that meant listening well. To notice how repetition reinforces meaning and creates emphasis, how the right word resonates, and how personification and anthropomorphism concretize spiritual realities reminded me again that to create art is to tell the truth beautifully. The craftsmanship of creating a fairy tale retelling in the light of scripture needs to imitate, as, as best we can, the perfect craftsmanship of Genesis 1. The labor needs to be a meaningful and good labor, the kind that the preacher finally, eventually celebrates in Ecclesiastes. But to do so, to do both of those things, craftsmanship and labor, we need the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is relational. It's the understanding, the prudence, the discernment, the insight of someone who is seeking to know the living God. Thanks for joining. Join again next time to talk more about retelling fairy tales in the light of scripture. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review so other people can find it too.